Hi, and welcome to Edge with Dr. Stephen Brown. This podcast series focuses on the story, the personal narrative of Australians who have pushed at the edge. They have been pioneers who are doing amazing things that are a little bit different to the everyday. Sometimes their stories are told and well celebrated, and sometimes these stories are reasonably well hidden. Dr. Stephen Brown is a highly regarded leader in the education sector, both in Australia and internationally. He is the Managing Director of the Brown Collective and has a strong interest in people and getting to know their stories. He has developed this podcast series to introduce you to some of Australia's finest citizens. Edge is a podcast uh, that tells a story, the personal narrative of Australians well-known and some not so well-known who are working at the edge. These people typify being pioneers, people who are doing some amazing things. And some of these stories are well-known, celebrated, uh, some are reasonably hidden. It's my great pleasure this morning to welcome uh, in that vein the CEO of Food Bank Australia, Bryna Casey. Bryna took up this role in July 2016 and with a distinguished uh, career in uh, social policy, agribusiness, uh, agropolitics, somebody who's a passionate uh, believer in uh, social issues. Previously uh, to this particular role, Brainer was CEO of Australian Childcare Alliance New South Wales and has interacted in the advocacy policy space uh, for the majority of her career. Welcome, Brianna, to The Edge. Thank you for having me. Brianna, how would you describe yourself? Oh, it depends on the mood of the day and how much coffee I've had. I would describe myself as a mum as a food banker, as a lover of life, a lover of change, and someone who passionately strives for outcomes that are better for people than the ones we have today. So I think most of my career has been about providing a voice and sharing a voice for those who don't necessarily have one, and about trying as best I can, and I'm not always succeeding, at living my values and making sure that as a mum, and as a woman in a CEO role with children, that I can uh, be a positive role model for others out there and, and really inspire and motivate people to be part of positive changes in everything that they do. And uh, you're certainly doing that well and um, certainly have positioned Food Bank Australia and um, being that voice for that particular um, sector. Along the lines, you mentioned values. Um, obviously, they inform you as a leader. So what are your core values and uh, extending this whole idea of motivation and purpose? So talk to us a little bit more about that. I sincerely hope my children are listening because they should be able to sprout off what our family values are very quickly. But for me, there's some pretty inherent values around honesty and integrity and, and the way I like to live my life. But also there's a really core and central value around kindness and tolerance. And it's something that I was raised with. I was very fortunate to have a really terrific, weird and wonderful childhood growing up in Byron Bay with parents who had really different backgrounds. Mum was from a really conservative farming family. Uh, in the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. And dad was from Melbourne um, and had a really challenging upbringing and a really colourful life in the early stages of his life. And 
the merging of um, dad's very colourful experience and mum's very conservative farming background merged into a family home that was built around the premise that everyone has a story and everyone has a background and that will either be deeply entrenched and, and inform their entire life or it will be something that's motivating them to change. So we had a lot of really interesting personalities and characters walk through our home and our life when I was a child and that has really inspired and motivated me to look beyond the the obvious when I meet someone and to really deeply yearn to understand what's driving and motivating someone's behaviours and to be really tolerant of the fact that difference isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can be a terrific and wonderful thing, but it's a matter of wanting to understand those differences and what that means for someone's path, be that in their career or in their life. So for me, those core values are also about curiosity. I am a naturally curious person uh, and I think that that probably drives a lot of people batty, if I'm honest, because I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> but I, I really want to assure people that I'm deeply interested in the answers. One of the things, um, knowing you as a great friend and uh, somebody I admire greatly in terms of your leadership, uh, one of those formative stories that stick in my mind is the first protest um, rally you went to <laughs> as a 12-year-old in Byron Bay. And uh, for our listeners, I'm not sure that uh, they would understand the, the uh, context of that without trying to embarrass you. Uh, perhaps tell us a little bit about that. Oh, look, I'm an oversharer. Why not? It's very difficult to provide some context without a long story. But Byron Bay is one of those idyllic towns, idyllic coastal towns. And when I grew up, and I'm happy to confess, I'm a 43-year-old, so I was born in the late 70s and grew up in Byron Bay at a time where it was a, a quite small surfing village uh, with farms surrounding it. It wasn't particularly well known. There wasn't a lot of money in the community. But one of the things that we as a community absolutely valued was the natural beauty of Byron Bay and the fact that being a small coastal village meant that we could be a community and act as one. And in the late 1980s, people really started discovering Byron Bay, not to the point that they have right now where you have the Hemsworths and, and every A-League and um, A-list celebrity uh, visiting the town and, and putting money into the town. But it was a time where we were at a precipice around whether or not Byron Bay would be overdeveloped and, and launch into the behemoth that it is today or would keep its charm as a small coastal village. And we had Club Med put in a development proposal uh, into Byron Shire Council to put in a Club Med resort on the beach in Byron Bay, which would have fundamentally shifted the values of the town and our people and our community. And it was one of those formative moments as a town where we came together and drew a line in the sand, quite literally, uh, around what we would and wouldn't tolerate for the future of Byron Bay. And uh, as an attention-grabbing stunt, a nude rally was held. And as a 12-year-old, I was mortified to have my parents at that nude rally. And uh, But for me, it was about recognising the value in people coming together, in sharing that voice, and in drawing a line in the sand about what we will and won't tolerate as people, as society, as a community. Ultimately, that development application was rejected. Club Med never came to Byron Bay. Um, 
it has managed to keep some of its inherent values, but I'm actually really sad about the way that Byron Bay is these days because I think the community that was so strong in rallying together in the 80s ultimately failed in protecting the bay from, from the overdevelopment that's happened today. But it was one of those uh, reasons that I went to pursue an environmental science degree at university because for me, the notion of the intrinsic values of the natural landscape, and you can't grow up in Byron Bay, a former whaling town that turned into a whale watching town without having some curiosity about the ocean and the natural environment. So I went off to uni uh, and included environmental planning as part of my core environmental science degree because I knew that a lack of planning had ultimately led to the demise of the town I grew up in. So apart from um, barely being there in your childhood, pardon the pun, generally you um, brothers and sisters or brothers, uh, you had a great uh, childhood, a happy home and... Uh, Obviously, as you said before, uh, a very diverse uh, sets of influences coming through the, the home. So where did you go to school, um, Byron itself? <laughs> I did. I went to Byron Bay Public School and it's, it's fascinating. It wasn't until I moved to Sydney that this whole question of where did you go to school became a thing. It just wasn't something that defined people in the way that it tends to define people in cities. I grew up in Byron, I went to Byron Bay Public School, I went to Byron Bay High School, and I thoroughly loved it. I loved um, the experience of being in a small public school system uh, where you could essentially dictate your future. And there wasn't a question about whether it was going to be a private school or a public school, is it the state schooling system? It was, that was the local high school. Um, and unless I was raised a Catholic, which I wasn't, um, then that was really the only option for school. But I did really enjoy it. And I think a lot of the educational leaders that I had throughout high school have helped cement the person I am right now in terms of that curiosity and wanting to understand people and um, particularly that love of, of science and, and social policy. Yeah, you can see the meshing of values and the formation and the, the informing you as a leader and the spirit of that. I know you've had many formative experiences throughout your career, but is there one notable influential uh, formative experience, um, both uh, personally and professionally, that have really uh, defined you or advanced you as a professional or formed you further as a person? There's been a few. Um, I think what will be enduring is an experience I had at New South Wales Farmers right in the thick of the millennium drought where we were dealing with some of the most heartbreaking, gut-wrenching stories from farm families who had endured season after season of hardship. And it was at a time where mental health wasn't being spoken about openly, but we knew and I knew from the phone calls that I was receiving from farmers and particularly female farmers who were deeply concerned about their husbands and their husbands having access to firearms. We could see the human toll that the drought was taking. And I was very fortunate at New South Wales Farmers to have a chair of my Rural Affairs Committee in Alan Brown, who really wanted to tackle this issue head on and, and our president at the time, Mal Peters, was backing us 100% in saying, do you know what, if there is ever a time for us to start asking those tough questions, now's the time. And we ultimately held a drought rally in parks, which brought together thousands and thousands and thousands of farmers and very high profile speakers. The Prime Minister flew in, Alan Jones flew in, but we also quite deliberately flew in Jeff Kennett when he had ended his career in politics and he'd just gone to Beyond Blue. And we knew it was a brave 
um, option to take in terms of speakers on the day. But we really wanted to open up a conversation about mental health and to make it a safe environment to do that. So we're outside in this massive marquee in parks, dry, dusty ground. We had a morning session, which was your traditional agri-politics and, and a lot of fist thumping and a lot of uh, being very vocal about the changes that we needed to see and the government support packages we needed to see to assist these farmers through drought and, and recognising that, that drought doesn't end at the farm gate, the fact that rural communities needed support ongoing. But then at lunchtime, we had a barbecue, which was very social focused. And in the afternoon, we had a session that we titled Bugger the Drought. We did want to say, Bugger the Drought, let's just talk about us as people and, and what we're going through. And Jeff Kennett stood up and really openly and bravely talked about the fact that something as physical and economic as drought is actually also deeply personal. And I can still remember a, a young farmer who stood up so incredibly bravely in this marquee of thousands of farmers. And he talked about the loss that he had experienced losing a neighbour very recently and the fact that this particular neighbour had taken their own life because it had become too much. And it was one of those watershed moments where farmer after farmer after farmer took that microphone and talked about their experience. And it was an absolute turning point in New South Wales and ultimately in Australia about recognising that mental health and wellbeing had to be at the core of policy solutions, had to be at the core of digging us out of a horrible, horrible drought. And we then created the country's first ever rural mental health network. We brought together providers, policymakers, and opened up a dialogue so that there wasn't duplication of effort and gaps elsewhere. We brought a coordinated approach to addressing what was a systemic problem in the bush. And I'm so proud that here we are 20 years later and mental health isn't something that's in the shadows, in the dark, not spoken about. We all talk about it openly. There is um, an absolute appreciation of the fact that it needs to be part of our policy narrative. And ultimately, it has saved lives. And for me, so many aspects of that one day and that one event that still gives me goosebumps now have informed my entire career because it was about being brave, about drawing lines in the sand. It was about bringing people together. It was about absolutely insisting that we changed the status quo. And that has really shaped my career ever since then because it's always been about sharing those voices, bringing people together and recognising that vulnerability and destitution and poverty and inequality have to be fixed in this country. And to do that, we have to bring it out in the open. And it's one of my greatest frustrations at Food Bank at the moment is that food insecurity and food poverty is today where we were with mental health 20 years ago. It's hidden. It's, it's not something that we talk about in everyday language. It's something that people feel a shame and a stigma attached to. And I think if there's one great thing that's come out of COVID, it is the fact that we as a society are being much more empathetic about the fact that anyone can find themselves in a situation where they're living from paycheck to paycheck. It doesn't matter how well you've planned the family budget. It doesn't matter the circumstances you were born into, that anything can happen. So I really do hope that this COVID experience does endure with people when they stop to think about why someone might need JobSeeker, might need new start allowance. While we do need to create change in the way that we assist families and and create a social policy framework and fabric in this country that genuinely helps families out of the situation they're in right now. 
You are definitely working at the edge of things, edge of policy, edge of reality, um, profoundly. So how do you sense you're working at the edge? Uh, some days it's because I know I'm about to fall off the edge and <laughs> not cope. I think for me, self-awareness is incredibly important. And I know that going from the bushfire crisis through Black Summer straight into COVID with no break and trying to be the best possible leader and colleague and mum that I could be throughout such a stressful time, I really did feel like I was walking that line on the edge. I, I felt so close to broken so often, but it's also what often brings out the best in me. I know that the people around me and, and my extraordinary leadership team around the country who were equally walking on the edge, but probably more so in that they were at the coalface directly seeing the impacts of what we were going through. It was that shared experience that we needed to embrace and, and bring together and to really find a way where we could be there for one another but keep going and keep doing what we were doing and, and recognise that at some point that momentum would naturally stop and that ultimately that was probably the most dangerous part of the year for us. And for me, it has been incredibly challenging but also incredibly rewarding to see the way that so many people have adapted and thrived under really challenging circumstances. And um, I think you need only to talk to any parent in this country who had to keep a full-time job whilst homeschooling. Not only are they going to have a renewed appreciation for the education system and our wonderful educational leaders out there, um, but also a new appreciation of what balance looks like. And, you know, we've had this kind of esoteric, waffly, in my mind, meaningless conversation for years and years and years about what work-life balance really looks like. But I think the COVID-19 experience has probably woken us all up to have a real and honest conversation about whether balance is even achievable and what is truly important. And for me, I have absolutely relished the fact that working from home has meant that I've become much better at engaging with my children meaningfully and being there for school drop-offs and pickups and walking the dog and focusing on fitness and growing veggies in my veggie pod and and being a much better human than I think I was before and if you'd said to me 12 or 18 months ago that I could fit all of those bits and pieces into my day um, I would have said you're dreaming but suddenly I have a new perspective on what's important to me and what's important to my family and what's important to food bank and at the moment and, and maybe it's that whole post-Christmas honeymoon phase where I'm, I'm seeing the world through rose-coloured glasses but right now I feel really optimistic about the the year ahead of us and the years ahead of us and the changes that I've noticed in myself uh, as a leader and, and as a mum. Fantastic. Why do you find yourself on the edge? I think I can answer that question you've answered previously and to do with that, a double barrel to this question, um, what do you want to achieve next? A uh, million-dollar question. I have to be really honest in that I didn't go through high school going, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. I, I really didn't have a plan. And I was very fortunate that my first job out of university was with Queensland Farmers Federation, looking after natural and environment policy, um, and then going into a CEO role at a really young age. And um, my time at New South Wales Farmers, my time at the Childcare Alliance, and ultimately my time at Food Bank has been about bringing all of my passions in life together and, and finding that unique sweet spot where 
I get to be an advocate, I get to be a change agent, I get to understand and work with some really tricky policy debates, those really difficult nuts to crack. I get to work with government and and ultimately I get to play a part in changing people's lives for the better. So for me, operating on the edge is about being a change agent and improving people's lives. And I'm not naive enough to think that helping provide food relief um, during a time of crisis is going to fix every problem that's going on within an individual or a region or a community or a family. But I know that if we can make food one less worry for someone to deal with, that just picks them up to be able to deal with the next challenge and the next challenge after that. So I see us as a really important part of the puzzle. And I think what I find the most extraordinary in the food bank family is the work that food banks are doing around the country in providing school breakfast programs and nutrition education for young children. Because ultimately, we have far too many children out there who are living with poverty and inequality, who don't have food in their lunchboxes, not because they were late for school or didn't get up in time, but because there's nothing at home to put in those lunchboxes. The fact that we can create safe environments across the country for those children to come to school and not be embarrassed to go to a school breakfast club and enjoy that experience and see it as a way to engage with their peers and have a full tummy before they go off to school. The ripple effect of that is huge. And what I love in the leadership programs that you're doing in the education sector is that you are opening people's eyes to what's going on behind closed doors and behind the scenes. And the fact that we have educators out there at the moment who know what's going on at home and want to be part of that solution and provide emergency food relief hampers in the staff room and and find discreet ways of assisting vulnerable children I don't think there is a higher cause. I don't think there is a more commendable thing to do. The fact that we can tap into those lives and, and ultimately start transitioning them into a brighter future, that, that's pretty special stuff. Wow. What do you want to achieve next? I think I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. And um, I know I've talked about being a mum a lot, but it is such a, a core part of who I am and, and what I do. I want to make sure that my two little humans grow up to be fabulous humans um, who can be kind and generous and honest and and act with integrity um, because it means that I've done a good job in in raising them with strong values and that they can be the next generation of leaders and change agents that are ultimately going to dig Australia out of some of the holes that we have placed ourselves in. So I want to guide them um, and be part of, of them becoming great leaders. And I want to see a generation coming ahead of us that is brave enough to call out the problems that we have and be part of the solutions. And if I can act as a mentor, either formally or informally, to those leaders as they blaze a trail, um, then that would be pretty exciting. So you mentioned the word leadership and a final question. So what are the things that you admire or think are important in in leaders uh, at their core or undertaking this um, complex task of leadership? What, what are the things that you think are so, so important for all leaders to have? I think purpose is at the core of it and acting with purpose. Um, I know I have a, a very biased perspective uh, in that I have always worked in the for-purpose space, but the leaders that I think make such an impressive difference have a core set of values or have a core outcome that they're trying to achieve, 
and they want to work with people to achieve that. They don't want to work outside of it or be adversarial. They really want to bring people along. And um, I'm probably one of those really irritating people that doesn't read all of the textbooks on leadership and management and doesn't sit down and, and look at Kobe's seven habits of highly effective people every day and go, right, I've got this. Um, I tend not to do it textbook style. I tend to focus on the people component and the leaders that I admire are those who live their values and I can see, understand the issue that they are trying to be a part of changing. And I think my leadership style is very much around wrapping my arms around people and bringing them along with me, alongside me and, and providing whatever motivation and inspiration that I can to find that sweet spot around what inspires and motivates them. I'm not one of those leaders who strides out the front um, and thumps my fist on a table and um, tells people to just follow and, and come along with me six steps in front. It's just not how I operate. It's not my natural style. I know for some leaders that's an extraordinary way to achieve outcomes. But for me, I want to be a leader that's recognised as understanding and respecting people and understanding the work that I'm doing. There is no point pursuing a career or a policy agenda or leading change on an issue that I don't deeply feel a connection to. For me, I have to passionately believe in what I do or I just can't do it. Rona, thank you so much uh, for your contribution and uh, to this podcast, but more importantly, the contribution, the difference you're making to the broader community through your workers, uh, Food Bank CEO, the wonderful team you've got there, previously in a childcare space and uh, the agricultural space. Um, some compelling uh, stories, um, your story about mental health 20 years ago. Certainly, you are a change agent and um, I'm very fortunate and privileged like so many to have you as a friend and somebody that we greatly admire, both personally and professionally. We thank you for the contribution and pushing at the edge with a, a generous spirit, one that's about making things better for others and not for an indulgent spirit. So thank you, Brianna, for your time today and thank you for the way that you go about uh, advocating and supporting people from all sorts of uh, situations and uh, contexts. So we greatly appreciate you as a leader and uh, thank you for your contribution to the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can follow Dr. Stephen Brown on LinkedIn and Twitter on at Dr. Stephen Brown One. Please join us next time for another episode of Edge.